Great to see all of you. So much love to you. Um, if you have a Bible, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, as we continue, or really near the end of our annual vision series. As most of you know, we're three years into a four-year-long-ish journey through practicing the way of Jesus. And all I want to do tonight is kind of my annual update on some recent learnings over the last year on behalf of kind of our leadership matrix and all of that, just some things that we're learning about spiritual formation, or more on that in a minute, about how we become more like Jesus. But to start off, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, let us read from verse 7 to verse 18 as uh, an act with our body to honor God in the scripture. Would you please stand with me for the reading? Verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, if that came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness, goodness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. Their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May it be so. Take a seat. Love is the acid test of spiritual formation. So said one of my professors to me just a few days ago. We talk a lot about spiritual formation around here, and if you're not familiar with that language, don't feel out of place at all. All we mean, basic definition, is the process by which we become more like Jesus. Or another way to say that is just the process by which we become more loving people. Because in Jesus' vision of life and what he called the kingdom of God, life under God's reign in this whole new reality through him, there is nothing more important than becoming the kind of people who first receive and then give love. In one story, when asked what the greatest command in all of the library of Scripture was, and if you've read the Bible, there's more than a few, Jesus' answer was, 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Deuteronomy 6. And then he said, and the second is very similar, what? Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. In another story, at the end of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has a one-sentence summary of all of his teaching. You know what it is? Be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. With that one-line summary, he's tapping into a long-standing Hebrew tradition that goes all the way back to Exodus 34 that says the dominant character trait of God is compassionate love. And the telos of the spiritual journey is to become people who are marked by compassionate love. Now, of course, we hear that, we're like, yes, great, we live in Portland, we're all about the love. But in our city, God bless you, we love you, you're welcome here, we have to clarify right off the bat what we mean by love. Because in my experience, what we talk about when we talk about love in a city like Portland is not necessarily love as defined by Jesus. In my experience, it's one of three things. Either it's one, tolerance. Now, there is a version of tolerance that I'm all for that basically says, let's agree to disagree and not kill each other. Let's not go to war over this. All for that version of tolerance. But there is a much more common version that I would argue is anti-love. As, as the ancient Christians said, it's love turned in on itself, or what we would call narcissism. And it's basically, I will let you do whatever the hell you want to do. Word choice is deliberate there. This is the one chance I get to cuss as a Christian is in a sermon, if it's the word hell and it has a double entendre, I'm safe. <laughs> as long as you let me do whatever the heck I want. See, I feel so much guilt, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> whatever the heck I want to do. And it's basically a get out of jail free card. You do you, me do me, let's stay out of each other's crosshairs. Now, all we have to do to expose the logical fallacy of that as a definition of love is just pick something that we agree, that both sides agree, is not good, like the abuse of heroin or something like that. That's not love. That version of tolerance is not love. It's anti-love. A lot of other people, when we talk about love, what we talk about is niceness. So in an urban or even in a metropolitan context, we have tens of thousands of people around us that we don't know from Adam, and most of our interactions with people are short and superficial. Therefore, it makes sense that we have a high value in an urban context for niceness. And niceness, I think, is a sub-facet of what Jesus later called agape. But we all know that some people aren't nice because they have been transformed into people of love. They're nice because they work in sales, and you are a mark. Or they're nice because they're upper middle class, and it's a way to virtue signal, hey, I'm sophisticated, right? Or they're nice just because of a sanguine kind of personality. They won the Myers-Briggs lotto or whatever it is, and they're just <laughs> kind of nice, right? And I'm 110% for niceness, but niceness is not the same thing as love. Third, what I think is the most common definition of love, or what most people mean by love, is desire. So when I say, for example, I love the hummus at Shalomiel down the street, and if you don't know about it, you're welcome right there. <laughs> Write that down in your notes. Um, when I say I love the hummus, what I mean is I want to eat it. And often, when we say I love her or I love him, in particular as pertains to romantic relationships, what we mean is I want to consume her or him. I want to get emotional pleasure or relational pleasure or sexual pleasure from another person. I want to get, not necessarily to give. 
But love as defined by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament is not tolerance or niceness or desire. It is, this is my working definition, take it or leave it, the decision and discipline of the heart to delight in another soul as an image bearer of God and to will their good ahead of your own, no matter the cost to yourself. That's the crux of it, to will their good. Jesus, in his one-line summary of love, said, greater love has no person than this, that a person lay down their life for their friends. So love for Jesus, the essence of it is self-sacrifice. It is not necessarily a feeling or a desire, though feelings and desires come along as we become more and more people of love, but you can't command a feeling and you can't command a desire, and we are commanded to love all through the Old and the New Testaments. Love is more than that. It is an attitude and an action of your heart and your body to will the good of another ahead of your own. And this vision of agape is based on Jesus, on his teachings, and more specifically, on his vision of the God that he called Father. Think of the writer John's summary statement of the character of God. And John is a fascinating case study in all of this. If you know John, he started out, his nickname from Jesus was Son of Thunder, and that was not a positive nickname. He was the one, if you know the story, who wanted to call down fire from heaven and get Jesus to commit religious genocide on a different ethnic group than him. So not a great start to becoming like anybody that is at all good, right? By the end of his life, near the end, we think he writes his three letters in the New Testament when he's in his 90s, most scholars speculate. His nickname in the church is the Apostle of Love, right? And at the end, in 1 John 4, 8, famous line, he just writes, God is love, or God is agape is the word in Greek. In that, he points right in the direction of the mystery that is at the heart of all reality, what in Christian theology is called the Trinity, which again, if you're new to Jesus and the Bible and his ideas about God, at first glance, the Trinity is just bizarre. It's a weird idea. God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But then when you get into it, it actually makes perfect sense if God is love. Because love, as defined by agape, can't exist outside of relationship. God is love, therefore God can't exist outside of relationship. So God is a relationship. God is a Trinitarian community of self-giving, other-centered, joyful, generous, compassionate, creative agape. In the story the Bible tells about the human condition, human beings are creating by, created by this Trinitarian community of love as an act of love for us to mirror and mimic that love to the world. Of course, we all know that something has gone horribly wrong. We all come out of, no matter your Myers-Briggs type, we come out of our mother's womb And as beautiful as life is, we're born into a condition, and that was the word used by the first theologians, ancestral sin, they called it, just this condition where something is off in our mind and body. Our default setting is not agape. It's not other-centered, self-giving, generous, creative, compassionate love. That's not like, I don't know about you, that's not my go-to default setting. Instead, it's what Dr. Gary Moon calls the egoic operating system where we are born locked in the prison of our own self-love, 
where our default setting is what is best for me, what do I want, what do I need, what makes me feel pleasure in the moment right now, not what is best for others. And if you don't believe me and you think that's cynical, just have children and pay attention. So one way to frame the gospel, there are all sorts of ways to frame the gospel, but one is that on behalf of the Trinitarian community of agape, Jesus comes to set us free from the prison of our own egocentricity and to offer us a way back into the kingdom, back under the reign of God, back into life with God where we become people who love as God has loved us. In fact, if you were to plot the three goals of apprenticeship that we talk so much about here at Bridgetown, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, do what he did, if you were to plot that inside the story the writers of the Bible tell about the human condition, and again, one way to frame that is creation, fall, redemption, recreation, in that you realize very fast that the end goal of be with Jesus is what early theologians called union based on Jesus' language in the Gospel of John, I in you and you in me and I in the Father where we're not even sure who's who anymore. The end goal of become like Jesus is in the language of the New Testament, we just read it a moment and go and more on it in a minute, transformation where we become like Jesus, we become love. And the end goal of do what Jesus did is in the language of Revelation to reign on God's behalf over the new world. To apprentice under Jesus is to go on a lifelong, and it is lifelong, journey back into union with the Trinitarian community of love, transformation at the core of our being into people of love, where actually what we do then with our body is embody love. Now, that is all like Christian Theology 101. You know 99.9% .9 of what I just said. The thing is, Easier said than done, am I right? Most of us smile and we nod at this idea of like, God is a Trinitarian community of love and me becoming a person of love. Yes, that sounds great until your roommate never cleans up the dishes, <laughs> ever. Or until you have a father wound that wrecked you and you're just full of animosity. Or until your heart was broken by an engagement gone wrong, or whatever it is. Easier said than done. Recently, I was listening to a long-form interview with the business guru, Jim Collins. I don't usually pay much attention to business thought leaders. I have nothing against it. It's just outside of my field of inquiry. But this interview in particular was fantastic. And at one point, Collins, who's wicked smart, said that, in his opinion, everybody in the knowledge economy has one central kind of question that animates all of their work. And he said what his was, and immediately, like, it took me two seconds to figure out mine. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely true. The question behind pretty much anything I ever do is very simple. How do people change? Like, that is the question that gets me out of bed in the morning. More specifically, how do you and I grow and mature to become more like Jesus of Nazareth? Or to sharpen that question a little bit, how do we become people of agape? Now, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but I feel like I have a vested interest in this question. They say people change for one of two reasons, pain or love. In my case, it's a little bit of both. Pain over, you know, just I'm not, in all honesty, I'm not a naturally nice or happy person. 
And if you don't believe me, ask my wife or my close friends. It's just not like my wife is. My wife like, is follower of Jesus extraordinaire. But I think even without Jesus, she would be pretty dang happy and nice. She's just that. She won the genetic lotto kind of thing, right? Not me. Not at all. So don't ever, if you, uh, like Myers-Briggs, if you're into that at all, 16 personality types, I'm the least common of all of them. Thank you, God. Uh, the INTJ. And um, never, if you're an INTJ, all one of us in the room, never ever Google your Myers-Briggs type. And then have you seen this where like you Google Myers-Briggs and then a movie or a TV show, show that you're into and they plot the 16 character types with characters in the movie? Have you done this yet? Okay, I'm always the bad guy. <laughs> always. Star Wars, I'm not even Darth Vader because we kind of like Darth Vader and he comes around in the end. Nope, I'm Emperor Palpatine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Harry Potter, I'm he who must not be named. <laughs> Breaking Bad, I'm Walter White. I mean, just pick your arch villain of choice. I am the evil genius. You laugh. It's not funny when you're in my body. It's not funny at all. So there's a pain in me <laughs> when you read your personality type and it's words like cunning, manipulative, <laughs> viciously strategic. I'm like, Oh, that's not, like, no, there's nothing in there at all about agape, right? So there's a pain in me, on a serious note, because there's a father and a husband, not to mention a friend and a brother and a pastor and a son, I get front row seats to watch the way that my own egocentricity wreaks havoc and does harm and damage to people that I love the most, that I'm closest to to where my failure to love in the way of Jesus actually does damage to my lovely wife, to these three beautiful souls that I'm raising in our family. So there's a pain in me over that. I'm guessing I'm not alone in that. A pain in my incapacity to love the way that I ache to love. But there's also a love in me. I just, I love Jesus' vision of God as a father as a Trinitarian community of agape. I mean, just reading yesterday on the Sabbath to my kids, John 15, Jesus' line, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remain, abide, dwell, make your home in my agape. Man, that, that is a compelling vision. When I have those moments of doubt or when I question or when I think, is this right? Am I making half of this stuff up? in those moments that I think we all have from time to time, I often just default to Peter's line, Lord, to whom else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There's no other religious system that I'm aware of that has not only a category for agape, but has that as the ultimate value. Lots of religious traditions, lots of secular traditions that have compassion as a high value, for which I'm grateful. None that I'm aware of that have agape self-giving, other-centered, generous, joyful, compassionate, creative, here, will your good ahead of my own. Man, as far as I am from that, I find that so compelling. I love it. I ache for it. So the question is, how? How do we become people who are pervaded by love, not defined by tolerance or we're just nice, or, but as defined by Jesus? 
So for the rest of our time tonight, I just want to share a very, tonight is very simple. I'm going to make it sound really complex to earn my paycheck. But it's really a very simple idea and with it practice that in my experience is doing a deep work of spiritual formation in my soul. On that note, 2 Corinthians 3, hopefully you still have that open in your lap. This is a very hard passage to parachute into because it's very dense and in all honesty, it's complex. And so a full explanation of the passage is outside the limitations of our allotted time. But basically, here's a summary. The passage is a compare and contrast between the old covenant, or another way to translate that word is testament. That's why the first three quarters of your Bible is called the what? Old Testament. And the new covenant, or the new testament, between Moses and Jesus. Between the Torah as the way to live in freedom and the Spirit as the way to live in freedom. From the kingdom of Israel to the kingdom of God. Between a model of spiritual formation that was run by willpower alone, here's the law, go do it, to one that is a synergistic interaction between willpower and the Spirit's power. Between an era where God's presence was in a cloud up on Mount Sinai and one person and one person only had access to God, direct access to God's presence, and an era where God's presence is in our mind and our body. Paul writes to the Corinthians just a letter before, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And now all of us who have the Spirit have direct access to God's presence. And Paul's basic case is that the new covenant is better than the old. Very simple. Not because the old was bad, it was not but because it was for a time to hold Israel over until the Messiah that we call Jesus. But now, all of us can, if you know that story, and Paul here is referring to a well-known Hebrew story in Exodus 32 to 34 about Moses, Mount Sinai, the cloud on Mount Sinai, how Moses' face would glow and he would have to put a veil over. If you don't know that story, don't feel bad at all. Just go back and read it on your own time. And Paul is saying, now all of us, in a sense, have the chance to follow Moses' example. We don't have to climb a mountain. If anything, we just have to put our phone away and slow down and quiet our soul and in the inner gaze of our heart, turn to God. Now, let me just draw your attention to Paul's climax, the last line in verse 18. Let's just reread that again. And we all, in fact, if you have the NIV, don't worry if you don't, but if you have the NIV, would you just read this out loud with me? Verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, give me a few minutes to break that down line by line. First off, and we all who with unveiled faces, that's a nod to the Moses story, again, read it on your own time, contemplate the Lord's glory. The word that is translated contemplate is katotrizo in Greek. Can you say that? Well done. One lexicon defines it as, quote, to see in a mirror, another as to mirror gaze. Now, there are two interpretations of this. One interpretation is that what Paul means here is to gaze at or to kind of look at God's glory. Now, short note there, Glory in the New Testament, and particularly in the Old, does not mean what it means in kind of modern English vernacular. 
So when I hear the word glory, I think of like the country music awards and the artist who writes a song about a one night stand and then it's like glory to God and the finger is up in the sky or whatever. Because you all watch the country music awards. I know you do. I mean, this is Portland. Come on, right? Um, that's not rem- so like what most of us mean by glory is like fame or credit or kind of celebrity status to God. Okay, fine. That's not remotely what Paul means here by glory. Glory is, in biblical theology, is the word for the tangible expression of God's presence and his goodness. So, for example, God's glory was on top of Mount Sinai in a cloud. It was a tangible expression. It was there. It was a cloud of God's presence. When the cloud was there, God was there. Same for the tabernacle and then later the temple. When the cloud was there, God was there. And God's goodness, when God's presence was there, the flow of God's goodness to Israel and the world was there as well. So one option is that what Paul means is that to contemplate the Lord's glory is to kind of gaze, to direct the inner gaze of your heart on God's presence and his goodness, but it's as in a mirror, meaning we don't see God face to face. We see a kind of mirror-like reflection or refraction of God. Another interpretation is that Paul means we are the mirror. And we reflect and refract God's glory or his presence and his goodness to the world. This is what it means to glorify God. It means not like, oh, all credit to God. That's not what it means at all. It means we live in such a way that in our mind and in our body and how we live, we somehow embody God's presence and God's goodness. That we're in the room, somehow God's presence is in the room with us. We're not God, but God's presence is in us and with us. When we're in the room, God's goodness is somehow, and it's all imperfect, and there's cracks in the pavement all along, but somehow God's presence and in goodness is through us. That's what it means to glorify God with our life. Now, which interpretation is it? Likely both, and I'm not cheating, I promise. Most scholars are, not all, but most scholars argue that Paul likely means it both ways. The New Living Translation captures this both and interpretation with this translation, quote, so all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is the Spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. We're here for the win is Peterson, as always. Quote, nothing between us and God. Our faces shining with the brightness of his face And so we are transfigured, if you know that story, much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. Paul seems to be saying, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that as we contemplate, as we direct the inner gaze of our heart on God's glory, on his presence and on his beauty, that it does something to us, to our inner woman or inner man. Next line, we are being transformed into his image. Now, the word that is translated transformed is metamorpho in Greek. Can you say that? Fantastic. We've done work on metamorpho before. One lexicon defines it as to change, listen, the essential form or nature of something from the inside out. It is where we get the word metamorphism, the word for the process by which a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. 
In fact, Merriam-Webster, true story, defines the English word transformation as, quote, a profound change in form from one stage to the next in the life history of an organism as from the caterpillar to the pupa and from the pupa to the adult butterfly. And listen very carefully. You ready for this? That is the word used by Paul and the writers of the New Testament for the level of change that is possible in your life and in mine in the new covenant of the Spirit. Let that sink in for a moment. Forget everything you've ever heard about what level of change is possible. Just let the Scripture inform your imagination. Transformation change in the essential form and nature from a caterpillar to a butterfly. That is bold, audacious, stunning, radical language. Psychologists used to talk about curing people. That language is now taboo. Instead, the goal is just to, quote, aid growth, or more often just to, quote, help people cope. You see the same mentality in the church all the time. In a cliche, like I'm dating myself a little bit here, but Christians aren't perfect, just, anybody know? Forgiven. Horrific. I mean, I agree with the statement, but the mentality behind that bumper sticker is tragic. As if the subliminal message there is as if the best we can hope for is a little tune-up on the way to the afterlife. We sure not get that language from Jesus or Paul. The strongest promise of life change actually comes not from the therapist office or from the church, but from the self-help community. Things like, you know, three steps to a better you or five steps to a whole new year or whatever. Well, we all know that is a marketing ploy. It's designed to get money from you, not to actually change your life. But for Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, for them, man, the way of Jesus has something on offer, real, genuine change in the essential nature of who we are from the inside out into people who are like God. And they would argue that level of change, listen, is possible in this lifetime. Now, if you know anything about church history, this is an idea that has been, if not lost, put on the back burner at least since the Protestant Reformation, and some would argue from far before that in the medieval era. Before that, the early church, and to this day, the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, would use the language of theosis, was the Greek word, based on the Greek word theos, which is the word for God. Um, It translates into English as deification, with the lowercase d. Now, that's language that's far outside of our church tradition. How often are you like, well, what's your main goal in life? Deification. Did you know for upwards of a thousand years, that was the word used by the church? The the first word was union, and the second word was theosis, deification. And all they meant by that was that we would actually become like God, in particular in the arena of love. I mean, think of the adjective that we read all through the English translations of the Bible, godly. And we hear that all the time. Oh, she's a godly woman. Oh, he's a godly man. Think about that for a moment. That's the noun God used as an adverb for people. Another way to translate is that is godlike. But we never would say, oh, she's really godlike. 
Oh, he's really, he's, he's godlike. Oh, she's a goddess. Well, we would say that. This is Portland. But um, <laughs> we don't actually mean much by that. But that's what the word godly means, godlike. To become a godly person is to become a godlike person, deification, theosis, whatever you want to call it. Peter's language of the New Testament, to participate in the divine nature. There's this ancient saying from the church. We don't know exactly who it goes back to, um, likely to the second century, if not before, that said this, Jesus became all that we are so that we might become all that he is. He took on our humanity that we might take on his divinity. Now, this is not, to clarify, a Hindu-like blurring of categories. Any theologian from the Christian tradition would say, no, God stays the creator, and you and I stay the creation. Jesus is a one-off. He is God and man, and there's, there's, there's nobody else like Jesus. But there is something to where we become so like God in love that it's godliness, it's godlikeness, it's deification, it's whatever you want to call it. The point is, set the language aside, that something like transformation to Christ-like love is possible in this lifetime. Now, if you think to yourself, okay, but I've been following Jesus for a decade or two decades, and that has not been my experience. Well, next line, quote, with ever-increasing glory. Now, the way to translate the Greek is from one degree of glory to another. Another way is with intensifying glory, meaning a little bit at a time. Think of the word picture of metamorpho. The caterpillar does not become a butterfly in a one-time kind of Power Ranger style like flash of lightning with a soundtrack in the background. Boom, butterfly, you know? (laughs) But rather through a long, slow, incremental, painful process of growth and waiting and feeding and struggle and darkness and patience and trust. In the same way, You know, they say, by the way, this is where Google will make you sound so much smarter than you really are, but they say there are over 20,000 species of butterflies, and in the vast majority, not only is the butterfly stage the last in that kind of organism's life stage, it is by far the shortest. For many of them, it is only a few days long. For others, just a few weeks. So like by the time you're 95, deification. And then you're dead. Um, (laughs) No, that's a whole other thing I wish I had time for. But in the same way, our metamorpho, our transformation into God's image, or put it another way, into people who are pervaded by agape, is long and slow and incremental. There's no Power Rangers, lightning bolt from sky, let me pray over you, and if I had that power, our church would triple in size by next weekend. It just doesn't work that way. Why not? I don't know. I have a theory. I don't know if it's right. My theory is that I just, the more I'm around God, the more I'm blown away by the level of love and respect that he treats people with. Just in particular as a parent, I'm very aware of the desire to manipulate my children to do what I know they need to do for their own good. But how often that is actually intention or fallen on odds with their dignity. 
And I'm just so shocked, in particular as I think about the world and I think about pluralism and I think about the problem of evil, the level of respect that God has for human dignity. And I, I don't know, this might be wrong, but I wonder if one of the reasons it's so hard to change and become people of love, at least in my experience, is because if there was just a light switch and it was just like, oh, become a person of agape, that's cool, let me like flip the switch, or let me read the book, or let me do like the three-week class, cool, got it, person of agape, great. In a sense, it would almost be an affront to our dignity. When we meet somebody who's 50, 60, 70, 90, and has been transformed into a woman or man of love, what do we feel? Respect. Mad respect. Like for, because we know what goes into that. That doesn't just happen. People don't just wake up one day and they're like, agape. <laughs> like, no, people stay locked in the prison of egocentricity. Most people until they die which then seals your fate, some would argue, for the trajectory of your soul. My point is just, I wonder if it's God's version of respect for human dignity, to let it be so hard, and to let it, at the same time, all be a work of God. And this, this is so crucial that we keep in mind. I know a lot of you in the room are young tonight. But it's so easy, one, to settle for a low kind of vision of transformation, to kind of clean your act up and like, you know, Willard called it the gospel of sin management. And it's also so easy. Let's say you reject that and say, no, I really want to grow and mature into love. It's really easy to grow tired and discouraged at how long it takes. I had a fascinating week. I've been looking forward to this teaching in particular for months, been in my heart, been learning all this stuff, and reading neuroscience, more on that in a minute, just to nerd, like all this stuff. And this last week, I have to keep this really ambiguous to not dishonor anybody, but I was in a context with a group of people I was new to. I don't know how to say this without a filter. Have you ever just met people and really didn't like them? Okay, there's just three of us. Okay. <laughs> INTJ, I'm guessing. <laughs> no. Have you ever had that experience? I'm guessing I'm not alone. Have you ever just met somebody and... They weren't like an axe murderer or whatever. There was just like a personality thing and like it just... They were doing them, you were doing you, and it was just ships passing in the night, right? So I just had an experience where I was with some people, and um, I did not click, is the most gracious way to say it. And I was so discouraged by the end. I had a really rough week, actually. I was so discouraged at all this stuff that just came to the surface of my heart. That was me. It was not them. Judgment, anger annoyance, frustration, pride, thinking I'm better than so-and-so. And I just, I was so discouraged. I thought, I'm supposed to stand up Sunday and teach everybody how to become a person of compassionate love. And all I feel right now is not compassionate love. It's annoyance, it's anger, it's whatever. And I thought, ah. And it's so easy to get stuck in that. I will never become a person of love. It's just not my personality. I just didn't, I don't have the right genetic code for it. I will just always be this, that. It's so easy. But that is not the voice of the Spirit of Jesus. And even sitting yesterday on my Sabbath, just with God and just as I held up my lack of love and failure at love to the light of his love, man, such a warmth from the Spirit, such a reminder, this is a lifelong spiritual journey. This, you will not become a person of agape in like, by the end of this weekend in teaching series. That was a great sermon. I am now a person of agape. Nope. 
If anything, all I want to do tonight is give you a vision of what's possible. Think 50 years. Think 70 years. Think at least way down the road. How do I grow and become? And this is not about our hard work or even our trying. Last phrase before we're done. Which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Meaning this transformation doesn't come from us. It comes from the Spirit. Put another way, it doesn't come from our willpower or from trying really hard to love people. How's, how's that formula working for you? For most of us, not very well. Because even if we're able to like grin it and bear it and do the right loving thing, which is great, they say that 90% of communication is nonverbal, which means we're all screwed. <laughs> because people know what's in our heart, right? Um, and people know that it's not genuine or it's not authentic, the love or whatever. Now, this is not, please listen carefully. Please, please, please. This is not to downplay the role of self-effort. Self-effort in spiritual formation, I would argue, is key. You never hear me lambast workspace righteousness. I think it's a paradigm that it needs to be set aside. Whole other teaching. There is a synergistic relationship between our spirit, or if you want another kind of more modern word, our willpower, and God's spirit, or his power, if you prefer, between self-effort and grace. But the main role of self-effort, in my understanding, is to create space to contemplate the Lord's glory in Paul's language and to let him, by the Spirit, love us into people of love as we surrender our will to his. That's where the will is very helpful. Right? If you can just engender enough willpower to yield. God, your will be done. Benner calls it surrender to love. I think it's one way of saying what Jesus meant by take up your cross. Surrender to love. Yield the will of your egocentricity, the egoic operating system. Just yield. Surrender to love. Take up the cross. And let God, by the Spirit, do the really deep work in you and me to transform us, not into just people who act in a loving way, which is a great place to start, but people who have become loving women and men in the image of God by nature. But it is the Spirit who does this work. It's not self-effort. It's not trying really hard. It's, not, it's all fine. It's the Spirit who does this deep work in us as we contemplate. Now, to tie this all together, Paul's thesis is simple but profound. As we take full advantage of our direct access to God by the Spirit, and as we just contemplate, or put another way, direct the inner gaze of our heart onto God's glory or his goodness and presence, we are then transformed at the core of our being into people who mirror that same glory, that same presence and goodness to others. Now, the practice of this, and it is a practice, has come, to be, have, has come to be called contemplation. Don't let that word intimidate you. It's not at all scary. It, in fact, it means different things at different times in church history. In one tradition, it's like a stage of prayer. All I mean by it, as a general rule, it just means to look at God looking at you in love and just to get lost in that, to direct your inner gaze at this Trinitarian community a generation or two ago, followers of Jesus would talk about beholding, which is another way to translate this word, and becoming, beholding and becoming. That as we behold God, we become like God. 
Or they would talk about the beautific vision, where you just sit and wonder and awe at the beauty of who God is. They would spend long, uninterrupted time periods just sitting at God's feet, so to speak, in worship. This is a practice that we have lost in recent memory. Not just because of the phone, though that's a huge thing, busy distraction, noise, alerts, all of that. But even when we put all of that away, if we have the self-discipline to kind of let our phone not become our master, and we put all of that away, it's, and we sit to think on God, still it's easy to default to the posture in our information age of intellectualization of God. And I'm all for that. I love the life of the mind. But Jesus said that the Father seeks worshipers, not theologians or experts. And I'm all for theologians. That's not a slam. And I'm all for experts. I think we need both. I'm grateful for both. But I am familiar through personal experience that you can be a theologian and know the Bible really well and not have become a person of agape. Because knowing about, like this is the cliche, knowing about God's love is not the same thing as knowing it. You see, as a general rule, we become more loving by experiencing love, not just by thinking or reading about it. Said another way, we are loving for the most part, this is again a generic rule, to the degree that we have been loved. This is why it's much easier for those who have been basically well-loved by their parents or caregivers to give and receive love to others. And why those who have not been as well-loved often find it way harder to give and receive love to others. Now, that said, please listen carefully. No family is healthy or good enough to transform you into agape. I come from a great home. I still have all sorts of crap. And on the flip side, no family is dysfunctional enough to keep you and I from becoming people of love in Jesus. It doesn't matter where you come from. There's a, a level of respect and compassion and awareness that we don't all start from the same place. I right, lots to talk about privilege. It's very helpful in particular for a room like this. It's good to actually apply that rubric to spiritual formation. We don't all come from the same family of origin. We don't all have the same personality. Some of us are an INTJ. <laughs> we don't all have the same life experience. We don't have the same genetic code. We don't all start from the same place. That's not an excuse. That's, not a vic that's just reality, compassion, awareness. Great. But all of us have the potential to grow and mature into people of agape love. But we have to experience the love of God. As Paul says in his prayer to the church in Ephesus, that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I love that line from a brilliant intellectual. That you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And Paul's paradigm is, if I'm reading him right, that happens as we contemplate God, as we look at God looking at us in love. The psychologist and spiritual director David Benner, in that little book I mentioned, Surrender to Love, um, writes this about his own spiritual journey into love. Meditating on God's love has done more to increase my love than decades of effort to try to be more loving. Allowing myself to deeply experience his love, taking time to soak in it and allow it to infuse me, has begun to affect changes that I had given up hope of ever experiencing. 
coming back to God in my failures at love, throwing myself into his arms, asking him to remind me of how much he loves me as I am, here I begin to experience new levels of love to give to others. But I must come to love through the cross, come to love through sin and failure rather than success and self-improvement. It is only when I give up trying to be more loving that God's love can really touch me. It is only when I come to him in the midst of my failures in love that his love can transform me. I'll never forget when my spiritual director said to me, John Mark, you need to sit in your sin and let God love you. He did not mean like go on sinning and don't feel bad about it. That was not remotely what he was saying. What he meant was, you need to hold your sin up before God in your mind's eye. All of your failure to love. All of the mistakes you've made. All of the things that have come out of your mouth to hurt other people. All of the, everything. No filter. No excuse. No blame shifting. No victimization. Just, sure, there's good reasons for everything. You just, doesn't matter. Just set it before God. Remove the human terrifying capacity for self-deception and bring all which is a defense mechanism because we know we're so unloving. Set all that you are before God. Set all of that, not in a masochistic way, just hold up your sin before God and let the Trinitarian community of agape love you. Let them press love deep into your heart as you are, not as you should be or wish you were and let that transform you. Sit in your sin and let God love you. Contemplation, that's it, that's contemplation. I look at him, he looks at me in love. Now as we near the end, um, we're hearing a lot right now in our cultural moment about neuroscience, I find it quite fascinating. And we're learning from neuroscientists, so much learning about the brain over the last few decades, the biological mechanism a little bit behind this spiritual phenomenon. So last week I reread a book I love called How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg, leading neuroscientist. Fascinating read. You don't need to read it, but by an agnostic. He's not a Christian, but it's a very high view of Christ and Christian thought and practice. I know just enough about science in general to be really dangerous, all right? Last hour there was a neuroscientist in the balcony, and I just thought, please don't email me. But... Um, <laughs> My summary of his book is basically, you know, we have mirror neurons in our brain. Most of you kind of are familiar with that. Mirror neurons just meaning that there's a biological mechanism in the way God made you where we mirror or mimic the emotional or relational or just the behavior of whoever is in front of us. So when we're watching an angry politician on TV or Instagram railing against the other side, what do we feel? Angry. We feel angry. When we're around somebody who's anxious and stressed out, what do we feel? anxious and stressed out. When Gerald walks in the room and he's like relaxed and happy, and he's actually like that. I've worked with him for almost a decade. I've never seen him in a bad mood, ever. He's late a lot, but he's never in a bad <laughs> mood, right? When Gerald walks into the room, I'm just like, everything's fine. Everything's just fine. It's okay. All like, oh, Fantastic. Life will go on, right? This is a beautiful reality of how God made you, the mere neuron. Now, this is all sorts of implications for contemplation. We mirror our vision of God to others for better or for worse. 
Newberg writes, if you contemplate God long enough in his research on contemplation, something surprising happens in your brain. Neural functioning begins to change. Evolution, notice how evolution is almost always a proper noun, as if it is a sentient being, as if a mind is in charge of the human process. Just saying. Gave us, evolution gave us a nervous system that actively participates in its own neural construction, something we do not see in other animal brains. Meaning we actually have a say in the kind of, to a degree, the kind of brain that we cultivate before God. Basically, he writes, there's a little part of our brain called the anterior cingulate that sits between our limbic and our prefrontal structure. When stimulated by the act of contemplation, it decreases our impulses of anger and fear and increases our feelings of compassion. When we contemplate on God, and in particular, his agape, it stimulates this part of our brain, the anterior cingulate, and it, quote, his language, not mine, appears to strengthen the same neurological circuits that allow us to feel compassion toward others. Very simply, as we think on the love of God coming toward us through the Trinity, it literally changes our brain and makes us into more compassionate and loving people. But before you get too excited, and it is beautiful, the opposite is also true, he writes. If your view of God is as an angry, a little bit mean-spirited, authoritarian tyrant in the sky whose emotional disposition toward you is not one of compassion but of disappointment and frustration, that will also change your brain. Newberg argues it has a similar effect on your brain to PTSD and changes your brain to make you more fearful, more aggressive, and less empathetic to people who are suffering. It comes as no surprise, and I say this not as a low blow, I just think it needs to be said, that those veins of the church of Jesus that most emphasize the wrath of God are infamous for having leaders and followers who are not very nice. Who are orthodox, very little can be said against their theology except maybe a disagreement over, you know, whatever view of atonement. They're just known for being kind of jerks. The Anglican bishop William Temple once observed that if people have a wrong view of God, listen, I thought this was fascinating, the more religious they become, the worse the consequences will be and eventually it would be better for, have them, for them to have been atheists. Anybody read Tara Westover's recent memoir, Educated? It's making the rounds. Fantastic. If you've not read it, it's fantastic. I stayed up way too late a couple nights ago. Like, it's not very often that a memoir, you're like, can't go to sleep. Fascinating. Her story of growing up in a far-right, fringe Mormon home, and it's more than just that, but very, very far-right. And, you know, the, the, the level of abuse and the toxic kind of climate it created in her family of origin. Just fascinating story. But my favorite thing was her on, honesty about what all of that did to sabotage her capacity, not only to give, but to receive love. So it is incredibly important that we think well of God. So important that God himself came as Jesus to teach us what he is like. It is so important that our vision of God is held up to Jesus as the litmus test. Whether your vision of God is as the angry tyrant in the sky, or more likely for a millennial in Portland, as the like super chillax new age yoga instructor who's just cool with you doing whatever you want. 
Seriously, that's honestly a problem, more of a problem for most of us. We will become like our vision of God, for better or for worse. It's so important that we, Tozer has said that what, you, what comes into mind, in your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Take that for identity politics. What's the most important thing about you? My vision of God. Because he said, if you, could, if you could get into somebody's mind and get your head around their vision of God, you could, quote, predict the spiritual destiny of that person. You could predict who they will become. They will become, you will become, I will become like our vision of God. We have to hold our vision of God up to the light of Jesus. He is the litmus test. We must never forget what another Anglican, Michael Ramsey, once said, that God is Christ-like and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. All that to say, Scripture and neuroscience and Christian tradition all attest that as we contemplate God, in particular his love coming toward us through the Trinitarian community, we become more loving. You can also apply this rubric, by the way, of spiritual formation to any other aspect of God in Jesus. Um, think of Paul's fruit of the Spirit, joy. We've done work on this before, more coming in December. God, I would argue, is the most joyous, happy, pleasant creature in all of the universe. Contemplate that. Peace. God is the deep. The early Christians used the word tranquility. The calm at the bottom, the subterranean base of your soul and all reality. Patience. I mean, just go down Paul's list in Galatians. Contemplate that aspect of God, and it will literally change your brain to make you more like God. Now, to end, there are all sorts of ways to practice this, just at a very practical level. Here's four. Reading Scripture, number one, and meditating on passages that speak of God's glory or His goodness. So in particular, I think of Exodus 34, Psalm 23, John 15 through 17, 1 Corinthians 13, those come to mind. Two, reading the Gospels in particular and meditating on Jesus, just thinking at depth about Jesus. Three, types of prayer, such as centering prayer. If you want to know more, just Google that or go to our prayer practice on our website. Or my favorite, I don't even know what to call it, just sitting in what St. Teresa and St. John called silent love, which is a kind of prayer without words where you just relax into God's goodness and you just direct the gaze of your heart onto the Trinitarian community of love. And I don't even know how to phrase this, but it's just heart to heart or spirit to spirit or love to love. And this is not remotely a four-step formula to make sure I'm clear. Though there is a little bit of a flow to it. I'm not saying you should do this. This is kind of how I structure my morning time with God. Normally, I start by reading Scripture. I read a psalm every day. Then I read a little section of the Gospels every day. You can read, like, two paragraphs. You can read a really short story. And then I spend a little time in contemplation. I'll tell you what I do in just a minute. And then I normally end with just, again, I don't know what to call it, silent love, heart to heart before God. Now, let me just give you just an invitation to a little practice I've been doing the last year that, man, I feel like it's doing so much work in my soul. Um, I have this little thing I do every morning, most mornings. I set aside a little time. The neuroscience all says you're supposed to do a minimum of 20 minutes. For me, it's more like four or five, but bear with me, and I know I have a long ways to go. Um, so I set aside my time. You know, I read my psalm and do, do some things and practice gratitude and in the quiet, and I don't touch my phone until after any of this. But I do this very simple little exercise. You can do this Lately, I've even been doing it as I've been walking around the city and running errands and stuff. I just 
contemplate, I look at the Trinity in my mind's eye, I don't even know the right way to say this, in my heart, and I look at God loving me. And then I go through this little triumvirate from the Gospel of John and the writings of Paul of love and joy and peace. And I just contemplate God's love for me. And I contemplate God's joy and I contemplate God's peace. Then there's three movements to it. Second movement, I then contemplate God's love, joy, and peace for others, specifically for my wife, my children, for anybody that I plan to come in contact with that day. This morning it was for all of you in this room in my mind's eye. Third movement, and again, this is really fast, I contemplate myself. I visualize myself as a person of love as defined by Jesus and joy, the smile on my face, and peace. It is, takes me a few minutes. I just sit there. I find it very pleasant to think about God's love for me and God's joy and God's peace. Those are all things that sound very nice to me. It's restful. I enjoy it. It's an experience. It's not just a thought exercise. And uh, to the best of my ability to discern, God is doing a deep work of spiritual formation in me. I still have decades left, as is, I'm sure, obvious to all of you. But I feel God is at work. I would love to just invite you for the next year of our life together as a church to do this every day. You don't have to do it. There's no practicingtheway.org page for it. There's no practice for it. This is not something you need to do, only if your heart is drawn to it. Only if, you know, you're into love and joy and peace, stuff like that, whatever. Um, and I can't help but think, if you want to know more, we'll, we'll, Gerald will walk us through an exercise of it Tuesday morning right here at prayer, 7 a.m., Wednesday noon, same thing. But just as we end, can you imagine what would happen to you? What happened to me? What would happen to our community? If over the next 20 years, you took a few minutes every morning to just contemplate the Lord's glory, to just contemplate the beatific vision, the wonder of God, his love and his joy, his peace coming toward us through the Trinitarian community, coming toward our friend, our family, our enemy. Who would we become? Thank you for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. We are in the middle of a year-long capital campaign to raise money to buy a building on the inner core, an old, beautiful, historic church building about a mile from where we meet right now. If you have been blessed at all by this podcast and would like to give to that over and above your regular giving to your church, wherever you call home, we would love to have you participate in that. Feel free to visit bridgetown.church/give for more information. Thanks for listening.